Good morning. Before I start, I wanted to let you know that Clayton and Jen were out of town, and they got back this morning. Uh, there were some delays. That's why they're not here, but I just wanted to let you know uh, why they're not here. But, yeah. All right. Well, it's 11 o'clock. <laughs> I'm not going to dally. So I'm going to get jump right in. I, I, well, I do have to say I love worship. It was, it was a lot of fun. Brought back a lot of memories, even which I'll, I'll get to as I share a little bit of my testimony as well. But just to give you some context of what I hope to accomplish today. So the last couple of weeks, of course, we had Easter, which was always awesome. And then last week, Ken spoke about what the unseen saw. And over the last two weeks, there has been a lot of preaching about the various perspectives and views of what happened you know, with the resurrection. And I wanted to continue that, and so to the degree I have a title, the title of my message here is How God Sees. Not so much particularly what he sees, but how he sees. And you're going to hopefully understand what I'm trying to communicate. But I, I needed to do this, and I thought to do this, is to tell you a little bit from my perspective. Not so much me just preaching to you, but for me to explain to you more from a first person of a little bit of my testimony and what I experienced. And as many of you know, I grew up in the church. My dad uh, was a pastor for 40 some years. And so I am what they call as a, a pastor's kid or a PK, which, you know, not necessarily the easiest for some. A huge amount of benefits, I will say that. But growing up as a, as a PK, many PKs struggle because of the weight of expectations from the people. Because, you know, they're the pastor's kids, so somehow they're supposed to be better, right? Somehow. And it's, it's a little bit unfair, but that's just the way it is. And so many PKs struggle with that. I didn't actually struggle with that, to be very honest about it. I didn't, and maybe I was just kind of different. Well, I am different, that's true. But... I didn't necessarily struggle with the weight of expectations of other people. I just, I mean, yeah, it was there, but I, I didn't struggle with that. And the reason why I didn't struggle with, the, with that was because I had a bigger issue that I had to deal with, was what God thought. And growing up in the church, I heard countless numbers of messages, read the Bible, and I had a problem that I couldn't resolve, which was my own sin, and even if you could put up the first slide, see, I had, this is the problem that we all face, and there's no grandchildren in the kingdom of God, and we're all children, but I had a problem that I couldn't resolve, and I thought about it. I knew who I was, and I knew God knew who I was, and that was my problem, that I knew my condition, I knew what I was unable to do be it hard work or a try-hard type of mentality and a willing myself to be better. But sin, fault, and shame was what I knew God saw. And I just, I couldn't resolve that. And I, there was nothing to cover over that. I knew that. And that's what the weight that I felt, it wasn't what other people thought, it was what God thought. 
And, you know, growing up in the church, some of you will know, and of course, this is dating myself 40 plus years ago. And in the church that was, you know, they would have some of these tracks, you know, the gospel messages. And one of the tracks, you know, was about the rapture. And I got to be honest, I mean, that kind of freaked me out. You know, the very notion that for those that were not in him, that when Jesus comes back, would not, would be left behind. And that kind of literally freaked me out because I thought about it and I knew where I was stood and I knew I had an issue that I couldn't resolve. And the question was pretty significant in my mind, like, what if? So nobody had to convince me of where I stood or the weight or the burden that I carried. I, I, I knew that. I lived that. And I was trying to resolve that. And this is, by the way, I was probably, you know, leading up to the events of what happened when I was in junior youth. This is all leading up to this is what I was trying to work out for me. And, you know, I did get saved, and I got saved in a youth camp, although I wasn't actually the age of the youth, high school. I was actually still junior youth, but because my parents were involved, my dad was a pastor, and there was a youth camp, and I got to attend even though I was a junior youth. And there was an altar call. And I responded to an altar call as a junior youth. And the funny thing is, as I, as I think back, it, you know, sometimes you have an out-of-body type of experience. Because when, and I don't even remember exactly what the call was. All I knew is when, it came, when it, the call rang out, I was up and I was starting to walk towards the front. And I was like analyzing myself. I was like, you're going up. And it was like my mind was trying to catch up to what my body was doing. And something of the spirit was drawing me in a way that I'm literally looking at myself like, oh, I guess we're doing this. We're doing this. We're going up. And I was just caught up in the moment, but it was like an out-of-body experience. And I got saved that night. Sorry. And... You know, I, I distinctly remember a number of things going through my head, you know, after I got saved. And I knew the weight that I carried. And I knew I was right with God. Just, I knew. And I knew, <sighs> I knew there was nothing left for me to do. Like I'd come home and I was ready to be with him. And I enjoy peace. Sorry, just trying to, so many things are going through my head. You know, some of the things I thought I realized now is actually pretty good theology because one of the things that went through my head was I cannot be more holy and perfect than I was then. There was nothing I could do more to make myself more presentable. It's like I just knew that in my head. And if you could actually go to the next slide. 
from God's perspective, I knew what God saw before. And in that moment after being saved, when I knew the way he saw me and how he saw me, holy, blameless, and esteemed. I knew it. And I didn't do anything other than by faith. I hadn't accomplished anything for him. Didn't. It was in a split second, in a sense, this moment where I went from previously knowing that he saw my sin, fault, and shame, and then all of that transformed, and all he saw now was holy, blameless, and esteemed. And I knew that. And I didn't realize at the time, but I was just living out what he said would happen in Colossians 1, 21, 22. Go to the next slide. And it says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's what I experienced. I didn't realize at the time. This is actually one of my favorite verses that I tell people all the time because this is the way God sees you. See, how, how did this happen, right? Next slide. See, atonement. That's all it is. And the word atonement, the most common definition is just to cover. And to cover is maybe not the most perfect description, but that's what it represents. It's a covering and a deeper meaning is to purge, to reconcile, to appease, to make amends. But the atonement enables God to see me as holy, blameless, and esteemed, and not what is covered underneath, which is sin, fault, and shame. See, we see that. We know ourselves. You can look at, every, you can look at your neighbor, and you can see faults. That's not what God sees. Because he views through the atonement and what he sees is perfection. It's imputed, but that's what he sees. And we easily, so easily, I did, I was intimately familiar with seeing my sin, fault, and shame previous to salvation. And it's very easy to adopt that as the only way we see because we can't quite translate, well, but God, how do you see me? And this is literally what the Bible says. He is, to him, in his sight, you are holy, blameless, and esteemed, above reproach. That's the atonement. So what we're going to do today is I've taken some time to create some visuals, because I know some of you are visual, to understand a lot of the concepts that you've probably heard and to hopefully put it together in ways like, oh, this is really quite simple, because it is. So... First of all, you know, and this was actually mentioned by Clayton a couple of weeks ago, in the Old Testament, Old Testament was a preview. It was like a foreshadowing of what was to come, which was Jesus' fulfillment. And one of the foreshadowing events was the Passover. And you know that during the Passover, prior to their exodus, they had to select a lamb without blemish. And they were to put the blood of the lamb, right, on to do the two doorposts and the lintel. And then they would eat the lamb. 
And the key was, which represents, it was a foreshadowing and a picture of what the atonement was to look like, is that the blood of the lamb was what God saw. And when, the, the blood shall be assigned for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's a very simple foreshadowing of what the atonement was going to re- represent. Was that it wasn't looking inside the house to the sin, fault, and shame, and really all the faults of all the people inside the house. All that was seen was the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And that was sufficient, sufficient. There was nothing more that needed to be added. It was entirely sufficient. I see the blood, I pass over. But that wasn't the whole story, of course, you know, to illustrate the next figure. There were some that were not covered. For the houses that did not have the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, ah, which was the Egyptians. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt because they were not covered by the blood. What they had, in a sense, you could say as their sin, fault, and shame, that was seen because they were not covered by the blood. So the blood, and so what all this is illustrating was the significance of the blood of the lamb, the sufficiency of the blood. There was, when I say sufficient, by the way, this is my language that I like to use. Sufficiency means there is nothing else that needs to be done. That and that alone is enough for all of it to transpire. That's what the word sufficiency, that's what it is. So Passover was the first mechanism of foreshadowing what was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. There was a second, and this one was a little bit more complex. It's the Day of Atonement. Okay, there's a lot going on here, but these are, as I said, are showing the different elements of what was ultimately to be fulfilled. And I know a lot of you know about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies behind the veil, and you understand the blood of sprinkling. Yeah, we'll get to that. But there was another aspect of this, which was the cloud of incense. And the cloud of incense, this is what it says. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. This is speaking of the high priest who goes into on the day of atonement once a year. That without the incense in this cloud of incense covering the mercy seat, which God says, I will appear in the cloud. Without the cloud of incense, he will die. And this, again, is a picture of the atonement. Because what God, if there was nothing between God and man, the high priest, he would die. The cloud of incense represented, the, in a sense, the lens by which God saw. And the sweet incense was beaten fine. And to me, that just represents Jesus. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Oh, he was beaten fine. 
So the cloud of incense was above the mercy seat, and it was through the cloud that God viewed, picturing the atonement, God viewed the high priest. And of course, you know also, and this is why covering is, in a sense, you can easily think, well, that's just kind of covering over, but and excusing what's underneath. Well, no, the Day of Atonement was so much more than that. Yes, the high priest had to sacrifice the bull, the sin offering, and take the blood of the bull as well. There were two goats. The first goat they would also sacrifice, and that was for, to make atonement for the people. And they would take the blood of the bull and the first goat and sprinkle it before the ark, before the mercy seat, and on the mercy seat. That's the blood of sprinkling. But it wasn't, that wasn't all of it. They also had the second goat, which was a scapegoat, which literally the high priest would lay his hands on and literally put upon the scapegoat the sin, fault, and shame of the entire community and then lead the scapegoat away into the wilderness. Picturing as foreshadowing of what Jesus would do as the bearer of your sin and iniquity and to not only, in a sense, cover over it, but take it away from you. That's the Day of Atonement. It dealt with the problem in as complete of a manner as it could have been dealt with. And that's just a foreshadowing, again, of what was to come. So now let's look at the real thing. The shadow is but a preview. It's not better. The shadow had to be done on the Day of Atonement every year because it was not sufficient. It was necessary, but it was not sufficient. So we celebrated Easter and the resurrection. And you know, that's what Clayton preached about, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Why? We're going to look at literally what happened upon the resurrection. Romans 4, 24 to 25 says this, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. I had to think a lot about that. Raised because of our justification. It's very easy for us. Well, Jesus died for our sins. This is talking about raised for our justification. And the word justification, as you can see, is the act of God declaring men free from guilt and acceptable to him. That's what justification. And he was raised because of our justification. So let's look at exactly how that worked. And you've given a, gotten a preview, so now we can look at the real thing. And before we go through, the early tabernacle was just a shadow. The Day of Atonement, all that happened there, that was just a shadow. It was patterned after the real thing in the heavens, the real court of heaven. It was but a shadow. And Christ, as we know, and this is what it says in Hebrews 9.11, I don't think it's up there. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Speaking of heaven, the court of heaven. 
So now let's look at this figure. Again, you have to deal with the problem. Sin, fault, and shame that we all know so well. If you're honest with yourself, I tried to be, and I knew it was a problem that I could not resolve because it was uncovered before him. So how did Jesus, upon his resurrection, Jesus was both the scapegoat, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, he bore our iniquities. He bore the sin of many so that he could carry it away. He was the scapegoat. He also was, as we well know, we sung about it. He is the lamb who was slain. It is his blood that made peace. And he's also our high priest. Which is why in Hebrews 9, 12, it says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So Jesus, with the foreshadowing, now you can appreciate what actually happened as a series of events in the court of heaven, which was the original of which the tabernacle on earth was patterned after. Jesus entered heaven with his own blood of sprinkling, sprinkled it on the mercy seat, then sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty as mediator of a better covenant. And this was done once for all. Once for all. It does not have to be done again. It is sufficient. What has happened is done once and for all. That's why he is our high priest forever. Not having to offer the sacrifice again and again. It is once. It is finished. So we now are covered. Which means that you do not have your own righteousness anymore, which is from the law based upon your performance but that, just, that which is through faith in Christ. Faith, by faith, you are now covered by the blood, which is now your atonement, such that how God sees you, remember, this is once for all. It's done. It's finished. Holy, blameless, esteemed. If you're under the blood. You can't change that. So, that's good news. Scandalously good news. Here's the thing, though. I know you're saying to yourself, and I've experienced this too, um, somehow this doesn't feel like my experience. It doesn't feel like, I don't wake up every day feeling like, well, you know, I'm, I'm like as good as I'm ever going to be in his eyes. Yeah, there's a reason for that. So, where are we now? This is what happened upon his resurrection. This is 
the once and for all, it's done, it's finished, this is the good news. So where are we actually now? So next slide. Jesus' victory administered total, eternal, irrevocable defeat of Satan and his dominion. I have to say this again. Jesus' victory administered total, eternal, irrevocable defeat of Satan and his kingdom. That is true. I'm a strategist. And here's the thing. I think we all believe at some level that that's true. That's true. Satan knows it's true. He knows the victory is won. So if you were the enemy, what would you do about that? I mean, let's just be honest and think this through. His defeat is irrevocable. It's eternal. It's total. What is his recourse? He has only one. He has only one, which is to do his best to undermine and obscure the work of the cross. That's it. That's all he can do. But Jesus, I mean, this is all, the provision is, it's all there. So now we're going to go back to Colossians 1, because this is what it says. Colossians 1. Yet now he is reconciled, we read this part, he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If, oh my, I wish the if wasn't there. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away, away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. There is an if. The total, irrevocable, eternal defeat of Satan and his kingdom. But there's an if. That's, this is embodies his only recourse. See, there is a principle, a, there is a spiritual principle, and I, I'm, I'm not going to, but please go read it. There is, in Exodus 25, it talks about Balak, who is the king of the Moabites, and he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. Okay, interesting job description. But Balaam went and was to try to curse the Israelites. And all he said is, look, look, I will only do what God says. And all he could do was bless, even though he was hired to curse. Balak said, curse them. Balaam starts an oracle, and he blesses the Israelites. And he does this again and again and again. And what's the principle? Balaam then, because he's a pretty cunning and strategic person, he then goes and explains to Balaam, okay, yeah, I I can't curse them. I can only bless them. But here's what you do. And he taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the Israelites and to commit sexual immorality and to eat and bow down before the gods, the Baals, such that they would now become a curse. I can't curse you, the Israelites, but if I make you and entice you 
to, in a sense, bring the curse upon yourself. Well, that same story, you're cursed. It's a spiritual principle. That what was laid out for as provision for you, you could actually act in a way to reverse it. And that's the only recourse the enemy has. That doesn't sound like very good news, does it? Because it's not. Now, Galatians 3.1. This is something you already hear. But I have to, I'm, I'm going through this because I'm hoping that we could put it all together so you could see what is actually occurring. Galatians 3 ends. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What does this mean? This is when Colossians 1.23 talks about moving away from the gospel. This is literally what it means is that if you can uh, go to the next figure, coming out from under the cover of atonement is moving away from the gospel. Why is that the case? The atonement is only there because of Jesus and the sufficiency of his sacrifice and victory on the cross. Rebellion is coming out from legitimate authority and putting yourself voluntarily under illegitimate authority. So when you come out from under the cover of authority, you're basically rejecting what the one in authority stands for, believes, and desires as their dictates in this situation. So to come out from under Jesus' authority is to literally to come out from what he's made provision for and to put yourself in an uncovered state. Such that what previously was entirely made provision for, sin, fall, and shame, he took it upon himself. He carried away from you. The way God sees for you is through that lens of atonement such that all he sees is you, holy, blameless, and esteemed. And you can voluntarily come out from under that entire provision of covering such that now your sin, fault, and shame is now exposed. And what Galatians 3 was talking about was two particular ways that that could occur, which is legalism, trying to keep the law. Don't try. I'm not saying don't try and do good things. I'm not saying that. Jesus fulfilled every part of the law on your behalf and has imputed that righteousness under the law to you. And if you voluntarily decide that, well, that's well and good, but I want to do that for myself, that is a picture of coming out from under what he's done and made provision for and deciding I'm going to go my own way. Now you can see why I rephrase it as rebellion. Galatians 3 talks about carnality, which is the work of the flesh. You cannot do it under the strength of your flesh. It is only by faith in Jesus' work. 
sufficient for all time, once and for all, the blood of sprinkling in the heavenly courts, that is the basis by which God sees. Coming out from under his cover is to put your faith in anything, anything other than what Jesus has done. To be covered is to say, by faith, Jesus, you have done it all for me. Scandalous. But if I put my faith in you, you've made complete provision for all time. Like I thought when I was 12, 13 years old, I can't do any better than this. There's nothing that I can add that can make me appear better in God's eyes. I wish I could have kept that thought in the entirety of my life. I wish. Because it was stunningly good theology. I just didn't realize at the time. Faith in anything other than what Jesus has done is to come out from under his cover and to have be exposed with your righteousness. Which if you can be honest about, not so much. In Numbers chapter 6, is a very interesting story. And I, I, it's fascinating from the idea of authority and rebellion. But to set the stage for this, right? So Korah, there's a rebellion about who should be, in a sense, ministering before God. A lot happened. There was a rebellion. There were leaders, 250. And basically, God made it very clear, yeah, they're not my authority. They died an unnatural death. God says, tell the people to get away from them. And the earth opens up, swallows them, and come back over. Because Moses said, if they die an unnatural death, that's pretty unnatural, then you kind of know who God picked. So that happened. And all the people scattered. The next day, the people come back and are now rebelling again. I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, you know, this is, whew, you saw something pretty unnatural and you're, you're back in for more. So this is what happened. So that's the context of this. And it says, so Moses said to Aaron, take a censer, because they're now in rebellion. That's why I use the term rebellion, which is to come out to, of the cover of the atonement. Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living so the plague was stopped. The cloud of incense. Remember, that's just a foreshadowing and a picture representing the atonement. The, literally, the filter by which God sees because it's covered. What is under the cloud of incense is covered. And in this rebellion, it's as if literally what happened was that the people, the, the, the community of the Israelites 
that didn't get the idea of what happened before that uh, not a good idea, they still rebelled, and it's as if they came out from undercovering, and then they now expose themselves because they were not covered, and the plague begun. And Moses tells Aaron, take your censer with the incense and run out there because the cloud of incense is going to reestablish the covering. And they literally, that cloud of incense literally was the dividing line between those, the dead and the living. The picture of the atonement. And what happens when you're exposed from coming out from under covering, which is to put your faith in anything other than what Jesus has done. So, last one. If we can go to the next figure. This is just a picture of the sufficiency again of what Jesus has done in making provision through the atonement, covering over sin, fault, and shame. He literally took that away from you And now the lens by which God sees you, if you're willing to stay under the covering, which is to put your faith in specifically and only in what Jesus has done, that has completed for all time, you will be seen as holy, blameless, and esteemed. But if you were to move away from the gospel, then it's as if you've come out and has rejected what Jesus has done as a sufficient sacrifice and now has said, I am willing to go for this on my base of my own righteousness and am now uncovered. And now God sees that. The intention is not just to point out that that may be where you are. The intention of all of this, in some total, is to explain to you, which is just the invitation, Come in under his cover. Come in under his cover. It is just by faith in what Jesus has done. It is that which enables you to stand before him holy, blameless, and esteemed, not the basis on what you have done. That's what he did for you for all time. It is finished. So we're going to end we're out of time and I'd love to sing a song so if we can have the worship team come up but I can't preach this message without giving you an invitation for those there's two aspects of this if you do not have a relationship with Jesus if you've carried around the weight and the concern, because you know that things are not right with, between you and God. I would like to invite you. You've heard all of it. I'm just preaching Jesus. It is not by the strength of your arm. It's just what he has done. And if that just speaks to you, I just wanted to invite you and come in under his cover.